Hi, everyone. Welcome back. It's episode 17, I believe, and we are the corresponding author. My name is Stephanie Hicks, and I'm here with my co-host, John Michelli, and we talk about all things academic data science. So today, we're going to continue on with the postdoc theme that we started from the last episode, but we thought we would focus on one particular aspect of it, specifically the process of um, applying to the positions. So the actual nitty gritty details of what do you actually need to apply to the position? Um, do you need letters of reference, things like that? And then also, what can you negotiate uh, if you can negotiate anything? Sound good? Yeah, absolutely. So someone, so I did not do a postdoc and I've never hired a postdoc. So some of these questions definitely come up. I know we've recommended use your network. You can cold email, things like that. But uh, I think that's a lot of the recommendation going around in a lot of academic departments, but I don't know how much of a, a frank discussion. It's like, oh yeah, go do that. And it's like here, like, what should you do? What should you attach? Do you need a recent re research statement? I know for like an academic position, you need like a teaching statement, these types of things. I have no idea. So I'm going to be polling you, I think, for a lot of these questions. Sure. So I think That's last great. time, yeah, I think last time you recommended uh, some cold emails. So like, what, what would you expect to be or expect should be in a cold email saying, I'm interested in doing a postdoc with you? Okay. If it's a cold email and somebody's interested in doing a postdoc with me, I would expect them to at least have a CV attached or website that I can go peruse and learn about their interests and learn about what they're up to, um, whether it's research-wise or teaching-wise, whatever the goal is for the, the postdoc. And I would hope that there, but by no means is this expected, but I would hope that there's a paragraph in there that explains why they are a good fit for my group or what is it that they would bring to the table that's so compelling that I should hire them on the spot <laughs> or um, some kind of convincing as opposed to me having to do all the digging and trying to understand um, who you are, what you're about, and what you could potentially bring to the table. It's similar to when you're reviewing a grant if you're or applying for a grant. If you're applying for a grant, you want to basically spell it out for the reviewer. You want to make the argument as straightforward as possible why they should give you the money um, or why they should fund your idea. And so if you don't do that legwork up front, then the reviewer has to hunt around for it and then they get frustrated. <laughs> then they're less likely to give you a good score. If you just spell it out for them and explain to them why this is such a compelling idea and they easily understand it, then they're more likely to jump on the bandwagon. Interesting. So do you think I wonder, do you think if you formulated your, like, you should have me as a postdoc as like AIM 1, AIM, AIM 2, AIM 3, I wonder, do you think that would be compelling to someone hiring? That's probably overcomplicating it. <laughs> <laughs> I Just honestly. Um, yeah, I would just want like five sentences or something just to like give me a sense of what is it that you are so compelled either by my group or why I should be so compelled by you. Um I mean, I don't, it could be either, it could be both, um, but just some explanation as to like why you'd be a good fit for the lab. Yeah. And when you say, when you say a cold email, like usually you've never met, you might not have ever met in person or you may have met once or twice, right? Like probably at the max. That's what we, I would call like probably cold. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. cold. I mean, even if you've never met them, I mean, that's cold or one time. I mean, yeah. that's, that's very, very cold. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> 
not very I guess well also, at all. I guess also the definition could be someone who doesn't have a postdoc advertisement up and someone you've reached out to, like, even if you know them, it's kind of still a cold email in the sense, like they have not presented that they are looking for postdocs. It's you presenting that to them, right? Yes. Typically it's you presenting that to them. Now, if you, somebody has a postdoc ad out there, they might have some specifics in the ad as to what they're looking for. And that I would say varies quite a bit in terms of what's looking for. Like, So some individuals demand three letters of reference at the stage of an application. I, maybe there's like an argument to be made as to like why that's needed. I, I would argue that that's probably more work for the applicant and the reference writers because um, the process of applying for postdocs is so different than the process of applying for grad school or for a faculty position. I would argue that the grad school application process and the faculty application process is pretty formalized, while the postdoc application process is more like the Wild West, <laughs> in my opinion. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's less clear, I would say, as to what the expectations are. Now, of course, if there's an ad that lists a specific set of requirements, then yeah, maybe, yes, that would give you reason to believe that you should pursue those like three items that the person is requesting. But in general, if it's just a cold email, could be anything. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So I guess if, if you are looking to maybe do a postdoc, I would say at least ask one to two people probably, would you be they okay to write a letter of recommendation just to, to do that you know, before, you know, before you're already graduating and getting out there, just like you would in an academic position. Um, but I think, you know, having, you know, definitely getting like four or five letters of recommendation, that kind of stuff it might be a bit, not, not overkill, but it's just, you would still maybe want to do those things in the legwork first, just in case you have some people who have like different requirements. But I think definitely the, it sounds like the two biggest things are having your CV update and very solid um, from what you've done and then having at least a plan for what you would do during the postdoc, which is almost equivalent in some respects to like a research statement if you're applying to an academic position. Yes, though on the other hand, some people apply to positions not knowing specifically what they want to work on. They just know they want to work with someone. So they are inspired by the person's general portfolio and they know if I go work with that person, I will get whatever knowledge I'm seeking. I'm going to learn a technique. And I, I don't know the specific project or the context of me learning that technique or applying that technique, but I know I'm going to learn it, if that makes sense. So what, do you, what would you say, like a 10% to 90% flattery to research content in that email? There's a degree of flattery. I mean, it's, it's more about like convincing someone why you are the logical person to hire. I mean... Yes, flattery is, of course, nice. But I mean, if you're just sitting there and flattering, the, making the person feel good about themselves, I, I, maybe that works for some people. But at the end of the day, somebody's going to make a financial decision to invest in you. And they would like to have, I hope, <laughs> I, would, I would assume that they would like to have some logical explanation into their head, like, why is this a good investment for me to hire you? Not only financially, but it takes time and effort on behalf of the people who are going to train the postdoc. I mean, for my own mentees, I invest significant amounts of time and effort. I want to invest th that effort in them because I know it's going to come back tenfold because they're going to learn those skills, those professional development skills, and they're going to be able to go on and like pass those on. So yeah, financial, of course, yeah. yes, is a decision, but then also 
just time and effort. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point. Even if you have funding, there are still financial um, resources that need to be put in there. Like time, I would say guaranteed is the biggest cost yeah. uh, overall from what I can tell. But like, you know, space is an issue. Maybe oh, like yes. resources that you have to give, like also different places with health insurance, all these types of things. So even if you come with like your own grant funding, depending on the institution, depending on your funding, you, there are still going to be costs to that person. So even if you think, you know, I'm quote unquote free other than the time, one time is the biggest investment, it seems like. And the other thing is there are other costs behind the scenes that you probably don't even know about, especially coming out of grad school. Right. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. So, so let's say you, you fire off a cold email. It's great. I want to work with you. I'm logical. And that person's like, what's the next step? From the faculty member's perspective? Yeah. Yeah. So from there, it depends kind of, I guess it's in the, the ball is in the faculty member's court. So a faculty member may say, I don't have funding. Um, but I would like to give me some time and I would like to identify if I can find a collaborator who maybe I could split the cost um, of your funding and, or maybe I could negotiate with my chair some funding to bring you in. And there could be a variety of reasons. And so somebody could just say, no, I don't have any funding. Or somebody could say, give me some time to um, get my affairs in order. And, and see if I can figure this out. Or would you be interested in applying for a grant together? Um, if that, that could be a request from the faculty member. So funding, once funding is somewhat secure or like a plan for funding has been identified, then it's fair to say to the applicant, yes, I am interested in you and I have the ability to support you uh, both financially and as a mentor. And I would like to interview you. From there, the I find a lot of postdoc interviews vary quite widely as to like what's expected after that point for like starting the interview process. So that's interesting because so I'm a little surprised on that. But do you think at least I would imagine some people would just have an informal call out of the gate, even if they didn't have funding started, right? Do you think, or do you think that most people um, would do the digging for a few days to look at the funding landscape first before even having that short call? Like, maybe yeah. that's like a, like a, the way a lab functions. I mean, for me personally, I'm not going to waste someone's time if I know I have no ability or like no shot at funding yeah. them. I would have to have at least some inkling in my head that there there might be a possibility that I could pursue this. And maybe in the time that it takes to schedule the interview, I could sort that out. But if I know it's like no funding available, I don't know if, I don't think that's very fair to the applicant. I mean, the applicant is also spending their time going around and applying to places and they don't want their time wasted. Yeah, I guess the the weird in the middle, which I would be, uh, even though I I'm, I can tolerate a good deal of risk, I would say I'd be pretty risk averse if someone said, you know, we just put in a grant yeah. to do X, Y, and Z. Um, I would that that money doesn't exist until it's in your uh, accounts. Right, and from the postdoc's perspective, that's a completely fair question to ask. Is where so, so if we were to do an interview, could you tell me about the funding source? that's associated with the position. So in some cases, if there's a direct funding source that's tied to a particular grant, there might be expectations, and there likely are expectations to do work on that grant. 
um, there might be a degree of flexibility, like you might be able to do 50% of your effort on this grant and 50% on something else using other sources of funding. However, you would, as a postdoc I, applicant, I would assume you would want to know that. And I think that's completely fair. And you should ask the faculty member, what is the funding source? So from yeah. that perspective, the faculty member has to have some kind of idea. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. the postdoc is going to be like, I don't believe anything you're telling me. <laughs> like, I don't uh, trust you. <laughs> absolutely. So I would also say like, you know, it's like, hey, we have a grant to do that. It's very different if that grant is in like year two versus year four right. uh, <laughs> because that funding will go uh, end. And I think um, most people would probably at least give you the, the 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 grant number so you could look it up on like NIH reporter or something like that just to see uh, some gist of it. And I would say probably most people would at least give you the first page of the aim so you get a gist of what that grant was intended to do. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, they might not give you the whole grant. Some people are a little bit, um, they're a little bit different if they, you know, giving people grants versus not, even if it's uh, not someone that might eventually work for them. But at least the, the the page of aims, I would say, is a pretty reasonable request if you are really interested in what that grant was about. Yes. I have heard of people hiring postdocs on startup salary as well. There, there's a lot more flexibility. So it's really like an investment from the department in the faculty member and the faculty member then chooses to invest that funding however they wish, I mean, within the bounds of like what's legal. <laughs> um, and that is often a student or a postdoc. I mean, it's sort of like viewed as bridge funding temporarily while you're applying for a grant. So, I mean, you might say that, well, I have startup funding and I would like to cover you um, with some portion of that for X amount of time. So that could happen as well. Yeah, I guess I wonder if it's a not the worst strategy to see where they are in the career. So I think the first or second year faculty, if you want to work with them, it, it'll be very interesting if like you targeted that because you know they have probably more startup funds than like a third or fourth year faculty or something like that. And, you know, um, I will say many, many, uh, I, I've never had a postdoc or uh, I've had master's level students, but I've had a PhD students. But, you know, there is just a different relationship from like the first student, the first postdoc, I think in the faculty and then and some, some, some subsequent ones too. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the interview process, there might be faculty who expect a very formal interview, just like you would as a faculty member, for example, and they want to fly you in. They want to go to dinner and lunch with you. They want you to give a job talk. They want you to meet all the collaborators. They want you to ask all the questions that you want to go tour the city. I mean, it could be like a very formal thing. I've also had interviews um, when I was applying for postdocs where the person would say, no, we're not going to fly you out. I just want to talk to you. <laughs> and I was like, really? <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Um, and I, I guess like to each, like every faculty member is different in how they choose to um, make that decision of whether or not they want to hire you. I guess in COVID times, everything is virtual. So I don't know what's happening right now. But even in non-COVID times, that was happening. And so you could imagine getting an offer just based on a phone call. If you really did a good job of convincing that faculty member as a postdoc candidate, if you really did a good job of convincing that faculty member based on your initial email and they kind of scoped you out and they understand what you're about, maybe they talk to one or two of your references and then they interview you for an hour or so. And if 
they really feel good about it, maybe they'll go for it. So that's like one extreme. And then the other extreme is like a very formal interview process. And I think it's important to recognize that both are okay. And just because you're, you're getting one experience or another experience or maybe something in the middle, there's nothing wrong with that. You also have to be interviewing the faculty member <laughs> as a postdoc candidate. I mean, like you also have, it's not just the, the faculty member interviewing you. So as a postdoc candidate, you want to ask every question you can to make sure that this is going to be a good fit or at least attempt to make this a good fit sometimes. And, and, and you're interviewing the department that you're going in. Oh, like great point. Yes. Meeting, <laughs> meeting other meeting other students like, or meeting other uh, postdocs there, for example, if, if they have any, you know, lowdown, like it's great for postdocs or they might have, you know, you, you might get some postdocs that have an ax to grind with the department and, you know, you have to weight that appropriately. But also like, it's interesting because Postdocs are this thing where I do see you having the ability to just have a call and, and maybe making a decision, but it's very rare, I would say, for a student to um, agree to like even like a two to three year program with site unseen, not visiting the site. Almost no one I know has taken an academic job with, without actually visiting the place. So it is interesting that some some people think, you know, think it's maybe a little bit more informal. We can just have a conversation and see if it would be a good fit. But there are some things for the department, the school, the other things rather than just that faculty that you want to make sure fit. Yeah, I, I find those types of interviews exist most often with, inter, with a faculty who are really well known in the field. So take somebody well known in your field. And if um, you have a student who's going to apply for a postdoc for this position, you have a sense of who they are. You might have met them at a conference. You might have worked with them in the past. Like you have a, this person is like well known in the field. So you could speak to or attest to kind of maybe a little bit about their character or a little bit about their mentorship style, or you could maybe point to people who have completed a postdoc in their lab previously or grad students who have completed PhDs in their lab and gone on to do X, Y, or Z. So there's a little bit of um, background or like training that you can point to. As opposed to somebody who's new, more young in, in their career, earlier in their career, then it's less easy for somebody to maybe make those statements about another faculty member. So if you, as a postdoc candidate reviewing with somebody who is well-known in the field, they, I mean, they might just assume that like, you know them, they are who they are. They are, they have a reputation, they have a brand. And if you want to know anything else, ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Cause like, I think, you know, and especially you want, you know, a center, you know, uh, types of mentalities and, and, and things to work well. Right. So temperaments, things like that, like I can be very blunt on things and that comes <laughs> off very, very wrong to some people, but other people that they respect, like they think that's more honest or things right. like that. So it's just, um, and if you haven't seen them give a talk or seen, you know, seen them do research, it can be, you might love their work, but they just, you just might not be a good fit personality wise. And that's not necessarily a reason to not do a postdoc, but it's something you need to go in with both eyes open and, and yeah. understand that. So I will say that's the last thing that we have. I don't want to say we you know, as a statistician, I wouldn't say I, I held anything against our two big conferences, JSM and ENAR, but this is one of the things, one of the time, the timing of those is actually pretty good for postdocs. Like ENAR is in, in March. So a lot of students are graduating their PhDs in around like May or June. So March is actually a good time to like, 
you know, if you're going to need to meet some people face to face and, and, you know, the, the conferences are in person, Enar is not a bad time. March is still a great time to be looking for postdocs. Um, August for JSM is a little bit different, um, because some, but some people do graduate in the, um, yeah and 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 like the fall and and times like that and you know it's it's common that you'd probably be starting in the fall a lot of times in the postdoc but it is a lot more rolling basis but i'll just say definitely use conferences to your advantage and this is uh definitely an indicate postdocs are definitely a time where the timing of our conference is actually pretty good to try Mm -hmm. to find positions i would say that's true Um, that's true so I, i like your comment about the postdoc uh, timeline being very much, very much a rolling process or on a rolling basis. I would argue that there is no formal timeline. I mean, it is true. It's a little bit dictated by the times that people typically graduate, but that's because there's like a timeline for PhD students. And that typically falls out and falls into like rolls over into postdocs, unless you want to like take a summer off and go hike in the mountains or something. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, people are putting in grants, like through almost you know all different cycles, things are getting funded all different cycles. The needs change over the year, yeah. So it's not like you need a September start date. So um, I think that brings me to a little bit like what? Okay, so let's say you're like this seems great. Like what kind of wiggle room? What kind of negotiation do you have as the apply? You know the applicant in any way? Well, so you might get some uh, an unofficial offer via email or via a phone interview or a Zoom interview, whatever it is. In that case, I still wait for an official offer letter from the faculty member. Once you have the faculty member's offer letter, that's going to contain a specific set of terms. For example, it would contain a potential start date. Like We would anticipate you starting by July 2021. And it would contain information about salary, for example. Let's take salary as the starting place. Some people would ask, how negotiable is salary? I'm going to argue that in some cases it is, and in some cases it's not. So for example, one reason it might not be is that the NIH actually has formal guidelines of what the minimum salary should be. Um, I've actually seen departments dictate the formal guidelines of what the salary is to provide equity across all postdocs in the department. They all start at the same salary. And maybe there's like an increase every year for um, inflation or for bonuses or salary increases, whatever the the increase is. But then other places, it's a little bit more free for all. (laughs) And so I think that's typically, I've seen that most often written inside the postdoc offer letter. Like, we offer you this amount of salary per year. This is not negotiable. This is nego- this is decided by the department level, or this is decided by NIH. I have no control over this. You can ask, but I can tell you no. So I, I think some things like that um, you could ask. Now, what you can ask for maybe is if you're moving across the Atlantic Ocean, for example, you could ask, can I have costs covered for moving expenses? Or could I have um, a a supplement to my insurance because I need to get a family level insurance um, package to be able to bring my family to this new city? Like there are other things that you might be able to ask for that's not directly tied to salary. And that's basically negotiated with the faculty member. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point, especially, you know, and I think we as faculty need to be really cognizant of people coming from different SES or like definitely different countries because I, I, I know like stories like, so let's say even in Baltimore or something like that, let's say like where you're at, like the average rent or something like that, let's say like $1,000, which is re- reasonably low. But let's, let's say it's $1,000 for rounding sake. Um, normally, if you're going to go to a new place, right? Uh, you haven't gotten your security deposit back from your old place usually. So you need first and last month's rent. So that's like $2,000 and probably a security deposit, which might be another $1,000. So like, you know, $3,000 out of pocket for somebody coming straight out of grad school is not a trivial amount. It's not a trivial amount for anybody um, in a lot of respects. So it's just these types of things. I still would say a lot of institutions, uh, they're kind of blind to it sometimes. Mm-hmm. They just don't see it, especially if you're coming from a developing country or you have, you know, different costs of living completely. Like, I mean, in the US, the variability is like super high depending where you're coming from as well. And so some of those things at least should be brought to the attention because don't assume, I wouldn't say as an applicant, don't assume that the faculty thinks about this consistent or a lot, especially, especially if we're saying like you're applying to like this person's first postdoc. Like you're the first one. So definitely bring up these things because they might not have considered them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the NIH has some guidelines, uh, but definitely have some discussions if you are in a high cost of living area, um, for sure, things like that. Um, and I think, so the other thing is when you make a, a form, what are your thoughts on like time? Like I'm saying number of years, like two versus three years, right? It's usually a contract for a specified specified amount of time, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's dictated by the department almost always. It's um, typically annual. You would be reappointed annually. And the way they write it in the contracts or the the offer letter are, we um, offer you an appointment from August 1st, 2021 through uh, July, the end of July, 2022, with the expectation of reappointing you for three years, whatever you negotiated essentially with the faculty member. Now, in, in that could be extended or like if you wanted to leave early, I mean, you could always leave early, but it's typically appointed every year. Now, yeah. that might be okay for somebody who's like a U.S. citizen or who has um, a green card, but it mo- becomes more difficult especially for the international early career researchers, because they also have to deal with visas. And so by the time you're doing your postdoc, depending on what type of visa you have, you may have to think about how long do I have on my visa that I can like realistically do my postdoc before I need to think about getting a different type of visa. So it's very, it becomes very much more complicated when you are an international trainee as a postdoc as opposed to a U.S. citizen. I'm not saying that's fair. I'm just saying that's a reality. And I've seen people put that on their CV, right? If you have a green card or a specific type of visa or a U.S. citizen. I mean, just I've seen like one line or two line there. But that's definitely something you should be upfront about because if you need, you know, uh, an offer within a certain amount of time due to visa re- requirements or something like that. It's definitely good to be upfront about that because if somebody really wants you to work with them, they will, you know, they'll, it's good to know that they have a deadline and they'll move to meet it, right? Yeah, Usually. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, what were we talking about before? I've lost my train of thought. So, I mean, salary negotiation, what can we do? Oh, right. So, you can negotiate all sorts of things. So let's say you live in a high cost um, of living city. If salary is not negotiable, 
you could maybe negotiate, can I get some kind of supplement or um, subsidy for parking? Like you can always ask. I think it's completely reasonable for a postdoc to ask. This was recently pointed out to me um, by an international um, individual. And they were saying, basically, they don't understand what's customary, like what is um, culturally acceptable to ask about versus not. And I think that's fair to say. I mean, that's completely valid. My response would be, you should always ask. I mean, there's no harm in asking. Um, The worst thing that will happen is they'll say no, or they'll give you an explanation as to, yes, they want to, but they can't because of like these restrictions. And and then they can put it into context. Best case scenario is you get either at what you're asking for or some compromise. So you should always ask. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Like new equipment, like new computers, any of anything. So I think sometimes we do not do a good job of saying like, you know, academia is a professional career. There are professional expenses and either things that you're supposed to, you, you will eventually have to write it on a taxes because you have to pay out of pocket. But there's a lot of expenses that I believe should be covered because they are required to do your job. And so those types of things, even though other people I would say in academia have different views on that, you should at least have those discussions because, you know, if you're coming with a seven-year-old laptop and you're like, I need to do work on it and you're going to be working locally if they don't have a computing cluster or like a, a you know, a, a, a tower that they're going to give you when you get there. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know many people who are using towers that much anymore um, that are like, you know, the standard ones from the university. Uh, there should just be a discussion about that and like, who's going to pay for that? Is that, you know, do I give that back over a few years? I mean, these are not like make or break. Some, sorry, some of these are not make or break discussions, but some of them are. Right. And it also shows some of the culture and expectations sometimes of the department. And, um, you know, just to be, just to be, uh, aware, sometimes you're going to ask a question that you don't even know is like stepping on a landmine of a whole bunch of stuff. You don't even know going behind the scenes. There could have been discussions about that department, but like if they're going to hold that against you, that's a good indication not to, to, to work with them because you don't know the, the, the landscape that you're going into necessarily. So asking an innocent question, I don't think should be really ever held against you. The worst is, in my opinion, they can say no. And if they hold it against you, that is a good indication not to work there. Yes. Um, the only exception I think could be is if it is an international faculty member and they have their own cultural norms. And, and that's the only exception I can think of is... Um, if the faculty themselves, and in that case, I'm not sure how you would know except to ask them <laughs> and then discover what their response is. I'm, well, I, I mean, know. not even just cultural. I mean, I, like uh, uh, fields, right? If you're if you're a shifting field, fields yeah. or you're going to like That's biology, true. so mm-hmm. or like statistics or things like that, like certain fields have a very top down kind of structure, uh, a PI based, and then everything kind of flows from the PI and things like that. Um, and then other flatter structures, like some you're kind of like a postdoc with a mentor, some you're in a postdoc in a lab. Um, I will say, you know, the other thing to be discussed is like responsibilities. There are some fields, even though I don't believe it's necessarily appropriate. Um, they rely on postdocs to, to do a lot of training for graduate students and undergrads. And that needs, it's hard because especially if you're not coming from that field, the expectations are are very different. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying, I, I'm not saying that postdocs should not be 
able to share their wisdom and training with other people. But when it gets to the point where a postdoc is a de facto trainer for everybody, I think that can, can lead to some, sometimes some abuse, uh, in some respects of their time. So just those types of things is good thing, questions to ask, ask people in that field always. And, and if you're a graduating PhD student, hopefully you have a good mentor or some people you've made good connections with in your department. You can ask these questions, um, because, Usually lack of information and lack of understanding of expectations causes, you know, some, some, some things to grind together when they, they could have been alleviated from the get-go. Oh, it's huge. It causes huge um, discrepancies and like misunderstandings. Oh, it's awful. Um, yeah, I agree with all of that. I would say if you don't feel comfortable asking the faculty member, you can ask maybe a student in their lab or a postdoc in their lab. I mean, hopefully they have or somebody who was previously in their lab. Maybe you don't feel comfortable directly asking the faculty member. You could say, do you think it's okay if I ask these things? That's another way you could go. Yeah. So. And I, and the last thing I'll say about salary is, you know, there will be opportunity in salary, opportunity costs to like sometimes doing a postdoc. But my opinion always should be, you should be paid a living wage. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it gets pretty close on the NIH minimum in Especially some very high cost of living. Yeah. What city you're in. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I know you were, you were up in Boston for a bit, which is not the cheapest city in, in the world. Yeah. It's not easy to get an apartment there either. <laughs> yeah. They have a very I mean, interesting, so the city is mostly made up of renters and it's mostly made up of students because there's so many universities there. So basically everybody moves in and out September 1st. And if you're trying to get an apartment outside of a move-in date of September 1st, it becomes increasingly hard because pretty much everybody does that. Not everybody, but I mean like the, the availabilities of apartments are extremely limited outside of a September 1st move-in date. Also, cost of living, and they yeah. pretty much all expect first month's and last month's rent. Plus, there's usually a broker that's involved. It's Yeah, it's quite expensive. <laughs> So that type of stuff, I would say, like if they have anyone who works with faculty, incoming faculty, see if you can use those people to help you kind of get an apartment or something like that. And then the other thing right now, it's probably some of the best times. So it's like, let's say, you know, in like two or three months, you're like applying for a postdoc and you're like, look, more, you know, uh, let's just say May 1st, I will be working with you, but I do not plan on moving to that area until like September due to these like reasons. I think a lot of faculty... Um, would be amenable to that. Uh, I mean, th this time, you know, co during COVID right now, it's it's a whole different landscape and I don't know how different it'll be. I wonder if like remote postdocs will take off or become, you know, I wouldn't say a norm, but become more more of a thing because I think almost always it's been the expectation that you, you move to that institution. I would um, imagine that remote postdocs are going to become more common in particular fields, especially. I mean, if I'm a wet lab biologist, maybe not. Uh, I can imagine yeah. some fields that would be a huge hindrance and not feasible at all. But something like data science, if you're doing a data science postdoc, I could see that. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. If the in person. Yeah, if you got to be in the lab, you got to be in, in usually their lab. Yeah, right. So some other things you might be interested in if you're a postdoc candidate, some places will fly you out, some places won't. It's okay either way. Um, just depends on what your needs are. So maybe the faculty member says, I'm not going to fly you out. But then you say, no, I want to be flown out. I want to see the city. You should say that and you should request that. 
Um, it just might be the faculty member doesn't need that. Now, let's say you're an international student, you're finishing your PhD internationally and you, um, you're demanding to come to the U.S. <laughs> to see an apartment. I, that's kind of up to the faculty member. The, the funding that would be used to pay for that it's probably going to be not from an NIH grant. It's going to come from some kind of startup salary or some kind of departmental funding for that. I mean, I that's going to be more varied. And I guess you would negotiate that with the faculty member. It happens. Definitely happens. Especially maybe if you're like in Europe, if it's a little bit closer. Um, sometimes you can find inexpensive flights. But yes, I think it depends on what your needs are and what your expectations are. Maybe you want to invest or negotiate and just like request um, help with moving costs just that one time. So yeah. And if you can parlay like a conference flight out there to like a visit, things like that. that. Yeah. That's that's always some, some, some nice things to happen. Letters of reference. I think these are varied as well. Some people demand actually three letters of reference sent to the um, faculty as they're applying, some people say, just give me the name and the contact information for a couple of people. And if this works out, then I'll call, I'll call them <laughs> and we'll save everybody time. It doesn't have to be so formal. So just know that there's wide degrees of variation in what the expectations are for reference letters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you need to kind of request those pretty, like a little bit of an advance, just give people a heads up. Um, I guess the last thing I'll say on applying to anything as someone who's, you know, like a quantitative person and who does like anything, like any, like thinks about optimization in any way. For me, one of the most jarring things was, is that there usually isn't an optimum. There's not a clear winner. If you have multiple positions, like if you have, if you have three or four postdoc opportunities or one or two or a postdoc opportunity in an industry job, I'm just saying like, try to write down your priorities before any offers come in mm, because it's really difficult. I, I, I have friends myself. It was like, it's, it's not apples to apples comparison. No, there's usually not like, oh, that is clearly the winner. There are pros and cons to each one of them. And it's, it's one of the hardest decisions you can make. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would just say, try to do that because, you know, especially if you, you think you're like a, a, a top candidate and you might get multiple offers and they're never going to be, it's never going to be like, that one's great. That one's not great. That one's not great. I'll take the great one. It's like, no, it's like, that's a good opportunity. That's a good opportunity. That's a good opportunity. And they can be like drastically different. And like, I've had friends myself, you know, you sit there for like hours, just <laughs> trying to figure out what you're supposed to be doing. And as someone who's like, you know, we are trying to find the answers to an analysis or a model or like an optima or something like that, it can be quite hard because there is not one, right? It's And it's a lot more, you have to also weigh <clears throat> feeling, like the way you have to try to prioritize the way you feel about certain aspects of your life, which is absolutely. super hard. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have tips for that? Ah. Uh, um, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten was like where you live. Um, because you know, th- this was during when I was applying for PhD programs and it's like, um, I know some, it was actually someone who lived in Baltimore, for example, and then had gone somewhere else. 
And I really liked Baltimore. And they were like, look, when I got there, I don't like the city. I didn't like the city. And so, you know, every single job, every single place you're going to be at, there's going to be times where it's rough and you're just like, this is like, I'm not having a great time. And it's that much worse when you're in a city where you don't like. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, also, I I prioritize um, proximity to family and my social structures because like I'm very close to my family, seeing them frequently um, is, is a huge deal to me. So uh, that's, so the one thing I will, I guess it's not advice necessarily, but constraints like geographical constraints, sometimes they are constraints. They're constraining, right? That's what they are. But, definition, yes. <laughs> but sometimes, so like if you, if you talk from a data science perspective, constrained optimization is sometimes much easier than global optimization. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I would argue, well, I don't know. Like, I see it both it, ways. <laughs> like it's helpful if, if you're like, I need to live in San Francisco, that really narrows your pool. Narrows the pool. That's a fair way of saying it. Yeah. yeah. It narrows the pool. So it's like, you don't, you know, it's like, oh, this is a really interesting opportunity in Minnesota. There's a great thing in Michigan, like all these types of things. Nope. Nope. I need to live in San Francisco. Those all like, you don't have to toil over deciding on those. If you hundred percent need to live in San Francisco, whether that be for your own preference or like a significant other or whatever. That's true. That actually happens a lot more than I think people realize. I mean, they see these ads posted all over the world for post-acquisitions. And I think a lot of faculty just assume that everybody can get up and move um, across the U.S. or from the other half of the world. And the reality is, I would argue that most people probably are living a very constrained algorithm. Like they're trying to balance a very constrained algorithm. They might have a partner who's got a stable job in a city and they want to stay in that city. So they optimize and they constrain their algorithm to look for postdocs in that city. Um, so there's different sets of factors and weights that come into the decision then that, that are at play. I think that's more common than I think people realize, I guess is the point. Absolutely. I mean, the idea, I think a lot of people have this like um, person. Uh, so I, I read this book, I think it's called obsessed i forget I'll, I'll put it in the notes but they they talk about this idea of like the ideal worker right and so a lot of the things especially in u.s culture is like a single man in their like 30s that they think can work like 100 hours a week that's like what like part of our work obsessed culture kind of like thinks is like the optimum which is like completely wrong um and so I'm saying, though, that a lot of people think that's like, oh, they just got out of grad school. They're probably of a certain age. They probably don't have like that many close ties. They like their whole goal is to become an academic. So like, yeah, of course, they could just move here in two years and then move somewhere else for two years. And it's just like, no, that's not that is not I don't think the average student, the yeah. average postdoc. I agree. Um, so having those discussions about like your other uh, requirements, like you were saying, like daycare, some other things that you might really like. Yeah. It's, it's a dead stop. I need this or I cannot come there. You should just have that conversation after, after, you know, what research do you want to do? Why do you want to work in my lab? Like all these types of things, but you know, people have to live and all of your life is not your work. So you just have to have those discussions. And uh, so I agree with you. I just, I would love to see this normalized, but how to make that happen. I'm besides talking about it, like I'm talking about it right now with you. And I think that's one way of normalizing it. But I would like to see this picked up more on a mass scale. Um, 
And I'm not sure how to embrace, like how to get others to embrace that food for thought, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the so some places, some people like, uh, I think, you know, there is consistently throughout the years, probably an okay track record of people getting jobs at the places they did their postdocs at, mm-hmm. right? Um, so just asking those, like, how common is that? Like, would that be like, uh, it, you can never get guarantees from a department cause that, that process is completely different, mm-hmm. but it's just, you know, I've always found it. Like, I hate move. I hate moving. I hate it. Like That's I hate to know. <laughs> stuff. I hate like new, like I, I, I think I would be okay with new cities, things like that. But like, if I have to move the books in my house one more time, whew, I'm going to like, they're going, they're going to a used bookstore. Um, it's just, I don't like moving. And the idea of like moving somewhere and then moving within a year or two is like just seemingly so unreasonable. So just at least having a conversation, like what is the possibility that I might be able to like get a faculty position if you have openings in two years? And you know, you're not asking for guarantees and stuff like that, but if it's just like, we are on a five year freezing hiatus, we've just hired a whole bunch. That's something to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because after two or three years, yeah, you put down some roots. Very much so. I could talk about this all day if I could. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's part two of postdocs. So you want to sign off with anything? Um, I hope everybody's doing well. It's 2021, and I'm really hopeful for the new year. So I just want to wish everybody a happy new year and um, a good start. I hope you're healthy. And take care, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, it's mid. Yeah, it's mid January. It's already one twenty fourth of the year gone already. <laughs> My gosh! All right, have a good one, everyone. Bye. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at correspond auth or my handle is strictly stat and stephanie's is stephanie hicks and you can email us at the corresponding author at gmail.com this episode was edited by jessica crowell and special thanks to the data science lab for their help and support